The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 2. Our, the text for our sermon tonight is from Acts chapters 2 and 4, descriptions of the cross of Christ and what God did in the cross and how Jesus was put to death by the hands of sinful men. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 24, and then looking over to chapter 4, verse 27. Here, God's word, Peter speaking on the day of Pentecost at verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And then turning over to Acts 4, verse 27 and 28, the prayer, part of the prayer when Peter and John were released. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. One of the results of the attacks of 9-11 was that people began to speak, again, using the term evil. That term had been out of fashion for some time. Certainly, it had been familiar to the World War II generation. Then we remember President Reagan speaking about the evil empire. But when men hijacked civilian planes to murder civilians, suddenly the term evil was called for again. Anyone who is familiar with the Bible knows that the Bible speaks clearly about evil. It speaks of the devil or Satan, that ancient serpent, Revelation 20, verse 2. It speaks of evil men and imposters going from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived in 2 Timothy 3. The book of James tells us that God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. So the Bible talks about evil within each of us. Yet here in the book of Acts, we read these passages which clearly link God's sovereignty over evil in the evil of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. These texts have a 
clear message for us when it comes to the evil, to evil and the cross of Christ. And I would like to look briefly about that subject this evening in the short time that we have with us. My first point is this. Although God is in no way the author of evil, he is sovereign over all evil. James tells us that God is not the author of sin or evil, but he is sovereign over it. And we, we see this clearly stated in both of these texts that I've just read. In Acts 2, verse 23, note, as we read, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And those words describe something more than just that God somehow knew about this in advance. It's speaking about the purpose of God being fulfilled. And it's interesting that Peter can say this, he was handed over by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you with the help of wicked men put him to death. So it juxtaposes these ideas of God's purpose in the cross, that it came about by the will of God, and yet it was wicked human beings who carried it out. The sovereignty of God over human evil. And similarly, in chapter 4, verse 28, they, all those who conspired, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the Jews, all, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Again, this linkage of the sovereignty of God over evil deeds of human beings. Although God isn't the author of evil, he is sovereign over all evil. Ephesians 1.11 says, In him we were also chosen, in God we were chosen, in Christ, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. What a broad statement. It's one of the clearest statements in Scripture anywhere about God's sovereignty over all things. Isaiah 45 verse 7, this is what the Lord says, I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Of course, it's familiar to all of us, the story of Joseph, and how at the end of Genesis, in Genesis 50, verses 19 and 20, when Joseph's brothers were very concerned that now that their father had died, Joseph was going to avenge himself on them for the evil that they did to him. And they come and throw themselves down before him, and they say, we are your slaves. Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is being done, the saving of many lives. A very familiar verse that talks about God's sovereignty over human evil. And then in Job, we find this clear description as well. Where in Job chapter 1, we see this, we see the curtain drawn back from the heavenly realms, and we see Satan come before God in some way. And he, he talks about Job, and, and God says to him, have you noticed Job? And he talks about him. And, and so we come to the point that the Lord says to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your hands. He allows Satan to bring Job through certain trials. And when Job experiences this, when the trials and the suffering begins to come and these disasters come upon him and his family, we find him saying, 
Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And the author says, In all this Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. And so here we see Satan, evil, testing and trying Job. But ultimately, Job was absolutely right when he said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Ultimately, God is sovereign even over Satan and his schemes and his evil plans. We have such a great God that he is sovereign over all evil, a truth that brings great comfort and consolation to all believers. And that's true for both the small evils and problems and sufferings of life. It's over the large evils and sufferings of life. But it gets even better than that. Our next point is this. God is not only sovereign over evil, but the Bible tells us that God works redemptively through all evil. God is not only sovereign over evil, but the Bible tells us God works redemptively through all evil. A very deep mystery. And when we we think about that, we think about God promising to bring good to his people out of the evil that they experience in this life, all to the glory of his great name. Probably most of you know those phrases pretty well, uh, that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, Romans 8. 28. And so we know that in all things, God is working good for those who trust in him, and it's all for God's glory. Our good, God's glory. And so our first point basically said, God is great. He's sovereign. This point is saying, not only is God great, but God is good. His purposes are wise and holy and loving. He's not just a God who arbitrarily Uh, is sovereign over all things in kind of a, a vindictive kind of way. No, God is not only great, but he is good. He is altogether good. We may not see it all. We certainly don't understand it all by any means. In fact, at the end of Romans 11, when Paul is talking about these deep mysteries, and he's been talking about the truth of election and predestination and things that are very hard for us to understand. He concludes with this doxology to the wisdom of God. He says, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. He goes on to speak of these things. He's basically saying God's ways, you can't trace them. You can't say, oh, I see all the reasons that 9-11 took place. I fully understand all that. Or I see why this deep suffering happened in my life this year. We may see something of God's purposes and what he's doing in our lives, sometimes not. To actually trace the wisdom of God in the evils and the sufferings of this world, we would have to be like God. And so the Apostle Paul ascribes wisdom and knowledge to God and cries out about that. And we likewise bow down before the unsearchable wisdom of God. And so the Bible comes to its end in Revelation 21 and 22. And I was just thinking about this. The chapters of Revelation 21 and 22 are what we often read at funerals. 
we read about this glorious descriptions of the new heavens and the new earth and the fact that God will wipe away every tear. A very fitting text to read. I was thinking about that this week that, you know, the chapter that comes before that is the chapter that shows the end of all evil. It's the chapter about the devil who uh, had deceived for all these years, was finally thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. And then there's this great white throne of God and the books are opened and, and all the dead are judged. It's the conclusion of all evil. And so the Bible itself shows us that all things are hurtling toward that final consummation when there will be the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells, and all evil will be finally ended. It's part of God's redemptive plan. And clearly there is a sense in light of that in which the Bible is saying that the glory of God is being more clearly demonstrated and revealed in this world because of the evil in this world. Very hard for us to comprehend and very hard for us to even begin to get our minds around that. But somehow the Bible is saying this is part of what God has purposed and planned. And so we can stand on Romans eight twenty-eight. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. When Johnny Erickson had her catastrophic diving accident and was paralyzed from the neck down, and wrote her book. For those of you who are young, this is a long time ago, 40 years ago or so. But she went on the Today Show and, and had a tremendous opportunity to testify to the Lord and His grace. And one of the things she experienced after that was she got all these letters in the mail, and some of them had descriptions of evil things and suffering that the person writing could see nothing good could ever come out of this. And Johnny certainly didn't have anything to say about that. And one entire chapter of her second book, A Step Further, is wrestling with this when suffering doesn't make any sense at all. And there may be something like that in your life that you can't even begin to make sense out of what God is doing. We're looking at the tapestry, as it were, from the backside, that familiar analogy. God is weaving the tapestry, and he sees the front side. And maybe it's, it's not going to be evident until glory, what the purpose is. But we know God is working redemptively through all evil. And that brings me to my final point, and that's especially where we come added from the book of Acts chapter 2 and 4. The cross of Jesus Christ is the supreme demonstration of God sovereignly bringing about a greater good out of evil. The cross demonstrates God sovereignly bringing good out of evil. In both Acts 2 and Acts 4, the fact that the sovereignty and purposes of God are described in such a way that it stands right next to human evil and sin. They're right there. They're packed together, verse upon verse. And there's no doubt that this was real evil being carried out. It reminds me 
of one of the accounts, probably you've read or seen many accounts of 9-11 survivors, and one of them was a description in World Magazine about Lieutenant Colonel Brian Birdwell. Colonel Birdwell was 39 years old when the plane hit the Pentagon, and he actually was the, the survivor that was the closest to the initial impact point of the plane. Everyone else nearer than he was did not survive. He experienced a four-year recovery period with 39 surgeries because he was burned in so much of his body and terrible infections that he went through. But Colonel Birdwell testifies to this whole experience and is able to say that he clearly sees one very good thing, that he is much bolder in his proclamation of his faith now than he ever was before that. And the Lord has opened up many opportunities for him in burn units and burn wards to go and to speak about the grace of God in Christ. Well, that's a case that you can see evident good coming out of that. But the cross of Jesus Christ was the greatest evil in human history and at the same time the greatest good in human history. Think about that. It was the greatest evil in that sinful human beings conspired together to put to death the sinless Son of God. You can't get more evil than that. In that sense, the cross was a hideous sin against God. But we all know and we love to sing about the cross, to speak about the cross, because God turned that evil into the greatest good of all times, that Jesus Christ paid for our sins. That's what we rejoice in. And that's what the gospel is all about, that Jesus, the sinless Son of God, endured the worst suffering. He endured the wrath of God for us. He endured hell itself, that we might be brought to God, because without Jesus Christ, we would be far from God. The gospel, as one person prayed during our time of prayer, the gospel is not about the sin out there somewhere. You know, in 9-11 and these kind of events, don't we all tend to think about the sin and the evil out there? If we could only stop it somehow, and certainly there is a necessity to fight terror in this world. But the problem goes much deeper than sin out there because the problem is the sin in our hearts. And no wonder the message of the gospel is so repulsive and offensive to the world because it's about the sin that each person has to own up to and face up to before a holy and righteous God. And none of us can stand before the Lord in ourself. You know, there's a lawsuit of some kind being carried out by the atheists of America about one of those emblems of 9-11. One of the, it's that, that cross that was forged in the inferno by two steel beams, and it was found by the uh, rescue workers and the, those who were uh, working at the site of uh, 9-11. And the, the, the cross that was formed was put up there for a while, and then it was moved to other points and has been a symbol of redemption 
through 9-11, but there's a group of atheists who have put this lawsuit out and say they don't want the cross to be part of any reminder. Marvin Olowski writes about that in World, and he says, essentially, they really have a point. Because if you really understand what the cross stands for, it is very offensive. People who just put the cross out there as kind of a sentimental symbol that doesn't really mean anything, he's saying the atheists really have it right in one sense. Now, he doesn't think they should take it away, but he says they're getting to the point of it because the world should be offended by the cross. Because the cross says that the world stands judged by God. Unless you flee to Jesus Christ, the judgment of God is upon you. And we don't tend to think of our sin that way. We look at the sin that's out there, and we think that's the bad sin. The sin in here, it's not that bad, and it doesn't seem that bad to me. And God says, it took a cross. It took the sinless Son of God dying for your sin in order to to make you acceptable to God, that you can come to Him and have eternal life. That message is offensive. And so no wonder atheists don't like it. And so the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, sermons that we read here, it's a call to us to turn to Jesus Christ in repentance. And if you haven't done that, I hope that what we're hearing tonight would cause you to examine your heart and to flee to Jesus Christ, the only refuge. But for believers, let me close with four brief points of application from what we read here. They are these points. Number one, the cross reminds us that it's not just about the evil out there, but it's also about the evil in our own hearts. And so, we need to confess, forsake, and trust Jesus Christ anew. That's what communion is all about. As we come to the Lord's table tonight, We must learn to do what James talks about, that we must realize that we can't say God is tempting me, but we must realize that every man is tempted when he's dragged away by his own evil within. And so the cross reminds us to confess our sin, to forsake our sin. And it's also we find this, an application in these terms. It's in the sufferings of this life that we learn to take deeper comfort from God's goodness and greatness. In the suffering of your life this week, maybe your basement flooded. I was so happy that our basement didn't flood. It's done that twice over the last 15 years, but the sump pump held. We didn't have our power go out. I resolved to get an auxiliary sump pump and battery pack, you know, for next time. But the basement didn't flood. My daughters did. Maybe it's small suffering like that. Maybe it's massive suffering in your life. Maybe it's the kind of suffering that is the deepest suffering that you're going to face in your entire life on this world. Learn to take comfort from the truth of God's sovereignty over evil and sin. You are able to trust the shepherd of your soul. He has not lost control of the reins of your life. He is working redemptively. And the cross of Jesus Christ is the great example that tells us this is the way our God works. He is a God who is able to bring good out of evil for those who trust in Him. 
And so finally, my last application point, let us long for heaven. Let us long for glory. The longer you live, the more that you see life is filled with suffering. There are going to be disasters. Uh, There are going to be tragedies. There are going to be natural disasters that strike. And all of these things ought to be reminders that we are pilgrims in this life. May the sufferings of your life cause you to more deeply long for heaven, look for heaven, to say, even so, come Lord Jesus and use me while I am passing through this earthly veil of tears. Use me for your glory to be a testimony to the transforming power of Jesus Christ and His cross. Amen. Father, we thank You that we can know with certainty that You are at work, that You permit and allow things in our lives that are hard, and that we know that there is a sense that we can even say, whatever my God ordains is right, that God moves in a mysterious way, His wonders to perform. Help us to hold tightly to the truth of Your Word and to so be fortified and strengthened to persevere no matter how difficult the pathway may be. Thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from our sins and prepares us and fits us for heaven. We ask in Christ's name, amen.